Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, the guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. It is, and I apologize for uh, uh, the, the music not playing. I don't know what happened. I, uh, I went to go play it, and... Uh, it disappeared, just like our Wawa's did a second ago. So uh, this is the music list podcast today. Uh, but you know what? You all know what it is, and you were excited for it. And the fact that you were disappointed that that you didn't hear it really means a lot to me, uh, because it means that you're paying attention. Uh, I am Chris and Claire. Uh, I am the host of the Good Bottle Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Drew Garrison, my uh, uh, my rowdy rowdy rebel, uh, my um, I don't know what else to call you. Drew, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm good. I'm feeling a little bit off off rhythm now because I'm. I always I always I enjoy this this the sick beats that that Leon provided for us and and his brother, um, and so like not hearing it and just hearing Jen's sweet voice, although very pleasurable, not what I was expecting. So we'll make sure that we have the exit music for all of our listeners out there. But um, but aside from that, man, it's been it's it's been a good week. It's been a good day. And, um, my, uh, my daughter turned three years old. We threw like 17 parties for her. Um, I think we might've been a little overboard and, uh, and then we had WrestleMania this past weekend, uh, night one, incredible night two, super disappointing, but that's not going to happen tonight. Cause tonight we have a really, really fun guest. Um, and he's actually, coming into the broadcast live from an operating bar, which is a huge deal for all of us right now, right? Um, this guy usually doesn't get behind the stick anymore, but, you know, desperate times, desperate measures. So tonight's guest is the beverage director for the Golden Bear in Hook and Ladder. He is uh, the current interim GM of Hook and Ladder, which I think is hilarious. And also, like I said, working a shift tonight our guest is Chris, the forcibly humble Tucker. Chris, thank you so much. <laughs> forcibly for, humble. For, for, for joining us tonight. So, so the reason I say that is because, you know, every emails are dangerous. Emails are dangerous. And, and so I, we, we, we sent, we sent Chris our, our, our standard email and it was like, you know, how, like, just tell us a little bit about yourself. And then it was so funny because you're right. Anytime that you have to write a bio about yourself, it's just, it's so awkward. I've had to do like three in the past, 100%. in the past two weeks. And I just was oh, like, terrible. what the hell? And so, but one of the ways that you described it was like, you know, you either sound uh, like you're bragging or that it's like forcibly humble. And I just was like, I don't know if I've heard that phrase exactly. So it's like, well, now you're the most forcibly humble person I know. Dude. <laughs> thank you so much for for joining us and um and then also for for dropping little tidbits of the fact that you listen to our podcast in conversation form that was really huge for me because i know and i know we've talked about this before and and good bottle chris i don't know if you know this but one of the people that I get really excited about liking my stuff on instagram is tucker i don't know why but it's like I seem to always notice when he likes it and it's a big deal to me. So then when I found out that he also liked the podcast, I was like, I don't know what to do with my hands right now. Um, so, so Tucker, why don't you, why don't you tell us what you're drinking and then 
maybe try to uh, explain exactly who you are and what you do without being too braggadocious and or humble about it. <laughs> All right. First off, uh, most importantly, I'm uh, just coming off a shift, so I'm having myself a little shift drink. So I've got a cold can of Tecate, and I poured myself a uh, one glass, there'll probably be two or three by the time it's done, of uh, tequila cascuin. Ooh, so I'm drinking yeah. a little, uh, little tequila cascuin right now. Nice. New That's to lovely. our shelves, but, uh, you know, it's one of those where I, I – and. Chris, you'll probably back me on this. Pretty much anything that Jake Lustig, like, kind of like gets behind or researches, I'm like, all right, you you immediately have my attention. You immediately have my attention. We actually, I should have busted out the Artanam from the Cascoine, but uh, that bottle, that bottle's going home. And so. and just for our our, our listeners, yeah. Jake Jake is the importer of of the Cascoine and the Artanam project, or is he? Because uh, I know I I'm just trying to I know him, but I don't. Just for our listeners at, yeah. at home. Yeah. He is a uh, he is on the supplier and uh, sometimes on the distributor side. He used to work for Southern, I believe. I'm not sure if he still does, uh, but he is uh, very much involved with an importer exporter of uh, of agave spirits. He um, uh, that's a guy I've I've known uh, from my background when I was back when I was bar manager at Centro. He uh, he would bring some really really kick-ass spirits to me every now and again and uh, uh like he got behind like espalone and then i think his group uh sold that off um uh he and now he's got uh, this project uh, like artanam he basically goes to distillers are already doing dope stuff and just says hey uh if you I'm, I'm just a fan of what you do can you do a bottling for me and it's whatever you want to do just make it a pure expression of your distillery. And so that's kind of what the Artanam, I, I totally boggled that, but that's essentially what the Artanam project is. And then Kaskawin, uh is uh, another distillery that he's just like, you guys do dope stuff. And, and so this is a tequila Blanco from Kaskawin, and then he also did an Artanam project with Kaskawin. Yeah, that's, it's one of, Which definitely one of those tequilas that I delicious. wish more people, yeah, more people need to, to drink it, you know, and, um, they have a couple different like fun fun expressions and I I mean again it's I think the the agave market like it's so flooded by all these things that are just subpar and there's not enough people drinking like the really good stuff and the crazy thing is is like you don't have to pay a ton of money to drink great tequila you know like you can really get some good no. stuff you know for a very affordable yeah um as well which is why i always love kind of blowing people's minds with that um so so i mean, I mean you so can I, too i mean you could you could spend over 200 dollars on a on a delicious bottle of tequila and that's that's right. also very think, easy to do but i do think it's important to you know to kind of uh you know to talk about the affordability of it as well because i do you know you see a lot of people who are coming into agave right now and one of the things is kind of like, oh, I don't want to get too much into it because I can't really afford another addiction right now, which is like, hey, I totally, I totally get it. But it is one of those things that you can get into it at a pretty low uh, price point and not everything. Like I, I saw someone the other day was talking about the tears of uh, uh, the tears of Lorna and um, Lorona. And, and that's Lorona. a, and that's a. That's a two hundred plus dollar bottle. It's an extra an extra añejo that mm. goes into French wine cask, and you know that's something that 
is it's a really cool bottle. It's great, uh, but it's expensive, you know, and so it can be a little bit of a deterrent. And so when, yeah. when that's someone's only exposure to it, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's Jose Cuervo on one side and then that on the other. You're just kind of like, well, you're 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 operating at two different extremes and there's a lot of stuff um, in in the middle. Um, so so Tucker, you were talking about, you know, you were at you were at Centro a long time ago, which is a really established oh, yeah. Mexican restaurant here in, in the Sacramento area. But now you are, um, you know, kind of heading up these programs at hook and ladder and then also golden bear, which are for a lot of people in Sacramento could be like two of their favorite spots and for very different reasons, which is what I think I love about them so much. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell, why don't you talk a little bit of just about your experience and, you know, just your time in Sacramento over the years. Sure. Uh, um, so about 30 years of hospitality total, um, 27, 28 specifically for bars and restaurants. Uh, and that kind of, so like with this year, it kind of marks spanning over four decades, which, yeah, now I feel real freaking old. <laughs> um, it started out uh, like years ago, I worked at a health club where like, you know, it was one of those health club that was kind of holdover from the 80s where they still had draft beer at the health club and so guys would like get done playing racquetball and then belly up to the bar and drink like 3,000 calories worth of beer to replenish the <laughs> 300 calories they burned the racquetball and uh and then from there uh here in sacramento at america live at um back in uh the early 90s it was a huge huge 70,000 square foot uh multi-venue nightclub um, just obnoxious as hell, but that's where I cut my teeth bartending and, and um, did uh, kind of more nightclub bartending. So from there, I uh, transitioned over to the Bay Area, worked for Young's Market, uh, worked for, which is now RNDT, worked for Young's in the Bay Area as a, a sales manager for about five years. Um, that gave me uh, very good insider knowledge for uh, returning back to uh, this side of the bar and in this side of the hospitality world where I then worked for Centro. Uh, I worked for the Paragaries at Centro as the bar manager there from 2000 to 2007. Uh, and then helped my friends open up uh, L Wine Lounge over in uh, 2008, uh, 2007, 2008. And um, then partnered up and uh, got behind the opening of Hook and Ladder in uh, 2011. We opened the doors in 2012. Um, from there, just kind of like uh, I, I first onboarded with the Golden Bear, was doing the back bar at the Golden Bear after uh, Ruffle Eastman had just been doing some like craft cocktails in the back on uh, weekend nights over at the Golden Bear. So I came in after him and kind of kept doing that. Uh, followed like after me was uh, Andrew Calisterio. He started doing it in the back bar back there, and, and the Golden Bear was just kind of like, okay, how do we how do we embrace craft cocktails but still be the Golden Bear? Because as you guys know, and uh, some of your listeners know, but Golden Bear is, you know, Golden Bear is a neighborhood spot. It's, some people would call it a dive bar, but it's, it's one of those spots where, you know, you pack in 120 people into a, a space that really should only hold like 22. And everybody is sweaty. Everybody smells like smoke. But everyone <laughs> to the last person has a smile on their face. And it's just, that's just the bear. That's just the fucking bear, man. It's just, you can't. You can't not have a good time. Now. And so they, they kind of played around with this craft cocktail thing on the back bar as a way to say, like, all right, we can do craft cocktails back there and let people kind of do their thing with that. And then up front, we'll just sling and, you know, high life and JMO shots. 
so uh, uh, we opened up a hook and ladder in 2012. Uh, so we're going on um, around our ninth year, uh, which is huge um, to have been able to uh, keep the doors open and keep some people employed and stay in the fight throughout this past year is just no small miracle. And I'm just surrounded by just incredible individuals that have shown up day in and day out just to put in the work and do it because they love it and for the love they have for one another and looking out for each other. And uh, yeah, so my job, my job when it's non-COVID and normal times as beverage director is usually one of kind of like uh, setting boundaries for success. I kind of do this with my hands. The podcast will describe it. It's kind of like bookending. And so I set the boundaries for like, all right, here's what I think you need to work with in order to be successful. And I kind of do that with the, the bar operators at each venue, uh, the bar managers, bar leads, what have you. And as they get successes, my hands just spread further and further apart. So you have like a program like the Golden Bear. I, I haven't been able to see my hands like in years because the Golden Bear is fantastic and they can do so many different things and do them well. That's like whatever opportunity or whatever thing they want to take a chance on, they can just fucking do it. Because if anybody's going to be able to pull it off, it's them. They've been able to uh, reinvent themselves and kind of have this like sort of like chameleon kind of like ability with that barge where it is just, it has stayed relevant for 16, 17 years now. It's an industry darling. And, you know, I go in there and I, I, you know, I start feeling older and older every time I walk in there, but the crowd stays the same age and it, <laughs> they still do fun and cool stuff. You know, it's still, it's still a fun spot and hats off to uh, Josh Milholm and the whole crew over there. It's like, they make my job real easy because like they have success after success after success. It's just kind of like, Hey, do whatever you want to do. Just tell me what you want to buy and I'll try to line up a best price for you. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's fun to have, two spots that are so completely different. And even with, um, with past involvements, like we've, uh, whoever we've partnered up with and whatever we've done, it's always been completely different and unique spots. And like the goal was always to help guide towards success, but completely embrace that individuality and really encourage that autonomy and that kind of ability to like, look, I'm just here to help you get cool shit and do cool shit and just and stay out of your way so you can do the cool shit. And then if it's not really working profitability wise, well, usually the owners or partners are then tapping my shoulder saying, uh, can you reel this in a little bit just so we can make a little bit more money or that this can work a little bit better or this could be a little bit faster for guests or something like that. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's, that's what I do. I like it. I like it. So, you know, obviously just a fabric, uh, part of the fabric of the Sacramento cocktail scene and its growth over the years and continues to be that. Hey, Chris, I know you're, uh, I know you're looking a little parched over there. Um, what are, what are you drinking? Which Chris? Sinclair. I'm calling him Tucker. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go Tucker with him and I'm going to go Chris with you because, and I'm still probably going to mess that up at certain points, you know? And then who knows so what you guys so see on your screen? Because like I'm like pointing. I'm like, well, which one am I pointing at? You know, it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but Chris Sinclair, uh, uh, co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast, what are you uh, currently sipping on? But before I get to that, because um, I'm almost out of it, which is unfortunate. It's delicious. Um, uh, before I get to that, uh, it's important that people understand that uh, Chris Tucker 
and myself are two thirds of what has uh, become known as the triumvirate uh, in Sacramento. The 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 three <laughs> the three of Chris, three Chris's. Yeah. Uh, I don't think all three of us are allowed to be in the same room at the same time. Uh, it would be me, Chris no. Tucker, and uh, and uh, old man Chris Dooley, uh, who's out there somewhere uh, listening and shaking his head as he's listening to this. Um, uh, but uh, you know, all, all three of us. Uh, I guess having a pretty strong, pretty strong impact on on this industry in this town, um, in very, very different ways. But uh, having Chris on here is is kind of a really special honor. So this is pretty great. Uh, to answer your question, though, Drew, I am drinking uh, a Sanron Sake cup. Uh, don't ask me what kind hey. of sake it is. It is a, a futsushu, and I don't know what that means. But I do know that it's delicious, and uh, I sell the hell out of them at go. Good Bottle. So there you go. I'm still learning my uh, my sake knowledge, and it's it's sad at best, uh, really. But um, I do know how to drink it, and I do enjoy it. So there's that. I think I, I so you know of there's course one, of course one cups are dope. Yeah, the what what they what they sell the the sake in I think is really really important um, because. As as people's palates expand, and especially over the, the past year, we've talked about this a couple of times already, but like people are really getting adventurous about what they're trying and stuff like that because they've essentially all built bars in their houses at this point, right? They had nowhere to go, so they they outfitted their bars. And what I really like about the one that that um, Chris is drinking tonight is that they put it looks like a road sign with a raccoon on it, right? Is that is that the animal that we've decided upon? And it's, ca- it's called a bear wolf. Okay, of course it is, because why wouldn't it be? Okay. It has I don't I think, know. That's I think what I was why, told. Yeah, why why it's important is because even though people are very familiar with sake and stuff like that, I mean on, sometimes with, with spirits and, and things of, of that nature, you only drink them in certain situations, right? You're kind of like, well, the only time I'm going to have sake is if I'm at a Japanese restaurant. Like, I'm I'm not going to drink it outside of that. And the and the bummer is, is that it's really amazing stuff that you should be drinking more of. So, how do you demystify it, and how do you realign it? You kind of like, well, you put it in funny packaging and looks a little bit like almost too close to homemade because it's very it's right there on the edge of kind of being like, it's like this looks. This looks like way, way too much garage made, um, but uh, but it's really, really, really fun though. So I'm glad I'm glad you picked it, and I can't wait for people to see it on our Instagram because you're just gonna die when you see these when you see these bottles. Yeah, it's it's great, and you know it's almost awesome. one cup. Yeah, these, just these one cups cup. are great, man. And oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, some of them have like like full on anime on them. Like it's funny because it's like if it was like. Uh, if it was tobacco, it would be like, oh, you can't do that. You're trying to entice kids to start drinking or something like, because that's some of those labels look like that. It's just like, it's so fun and enticing. You're like, I don't know what that is, but I want that. And like in Japan, they, they're they like in, they're in a vending machine. You get them on the street and out of vending machine. And you can just like keep the uh, the road party going and just go up to a vending machine and get one of those little one cups out of a dispenser. That's amazing. Incredible. Well, it's fun about what's yeah. fun is that like they're, they're so inexpensive, and it's not like it's not like this is crazy high proof yeah. at all. This is like fifteen percent. You know, it's a it's a it's a high proof glass of wine uh, for context. Uh, and I, you know, I've just been sitting here sipping on it, and now it's almost gone, and I'm sad. So. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, yeah, Drew, what yeah. are you drinking? Um, I I I picked a bottle tonight 
that um, that I know everybody here is very excited about and um, has been building momentum over over the past couple of months and actually really over the past year. And um, so I'm going to show it up for the visual for the guys. And of course, I'll talk about it. But I have the the M&H pomegranate cask. And I just I love so much about this distillery and um, just the fact that that they that they make really, really good whiskey. And it just happens to be from Tel Aviv, which is so bizarre and, and strange. And then this new cask that they just released the uh, the whiskey was aged in pomegranate wine cask, and so pomegranate wine is huge in Israel. It's one of their biggest uh, biggest products. So it was natural for them to to make this connection and and do that. And I think, with that being said, you know, there's definitely some some remnants of like kind of sherry cask when you're talking about some of like the raisiny notes that you expect out of a sherry cask whiskey that comes through on this pomegranate, but it's so bizarrely complimentary to the whiskey. Like it just makes no sense whatsoever, except for the fact that it's like these two things coming from this very specific place make sense for each other. And I don't know how well it would translate in other scenarios with with like other types of whiskey. Like if you came to with like a pomegranate from, uh, pomegranate wine cast that was an Isla, I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, I, I don't know if I would be as accepting, but because it's so tied into the culture, it's just kind of like, well, of course you would have a kosher single malt from Tel Aviv, Israel, go into a kosher pomegranate wine cask and then release this one thing. And so it's, it's this whiskey that has just kind of lived in infamy within the Sacramento uh, whiskey groups and stuff like that, because we got a single bottle of it last year during like the middle of the pandemic and only 24 or 25 people got to try it. And fortunately all 25 loved it and so over the past week you know this this stuff has hit sacramento and more and more people are getting to try it and they're just kind of like yes this is the chosen whiskey this is the one that we've been waiting for and so i'm really excited about it and the thing that's crazy you know this is uh let's see so this is the second batch and this thing clocks in at 60.3 abv and it's terrifying because it doesn't drink like that at all you know so uh, it's one of those sea leg whiskeys where you're sitting down, you're enjoying yourself and then you get up and you're like, am I on a boat? Cause I just fell back down. Um, but I'm really, really excited to, you, that we have it. You say that you say that high proof in my mind and with pomegranate it immediately goes to like that kind of hot kind of pomegranate sugar, like, uh, from like making grenadine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just like, like then my mind kind of went to that, but then you're saying that like, Oh no, it's, way more mellow than that or it's drink it drinks way more approachably than that like that's it's immediately like intriguing to me yeah it's it's super fun and i actually um within my own within my portfolio we also have an armenian uh pomegranate wine that i that i picked up as well over the past week so um i definitely want to sit down with a couple people and and just because i've never had pomegranate wine so uh, of course tucker has um so I want to, I want to, I'm raising my, I'm raising my hand to be one of Oh, you can come. Oh, okay. 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 Cool. 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 Yeah. So so we'll do that. I actually do have, I do have some ideas that I've been, I've been bouncing off of your bar manager, Lauren, um, who's one of our favorite people as well about doing like a, like a super weird wine lunch, you know, 
where I just bring the craziest shit in my portfolio and just be like, come to hook, come to the back patio, which is one of my favorite back was one of my favorite patios in Sacramento. And let's go nuts. Just tell me what you think. I'm not buying you lunch. I'll have some snacks, (laughs) but you know, it's like, we're JVS. We're not, we're not rich. So we got to be careful about what we can really commit to here. uh, Money wise, but we're going to, we're going to have some fun with it. So, um, but that's, that, that'll, that'll be in the future. But yeah, I I think it, I think it will be really cool to, to try like an actual pomegranate wine cat or wine itself. And then be like, Hey, can I really start to identify? Because again, it's, you know, you, you hear about red wine casks, you hear about Madeira cask and all, and the list goes kind of on and on. And, um, you know, again, with, with milk and honey being kosher, it's important that they use kosher items in pomegranate wine being kosher because of going through the process in Israel. It just makes it one of those options that they can they can pull off relatively easily compared to like when they did a sherry cask. They flew to uh, they flew to Spain. They oversaw the production and made sure it stayed kosher and then brought that back. And then, um, of course, my favorite thing about any any barrel aging when it comes to 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 mnh is they can do bourbon cask with no problems they don't have to be kosher because bourbon wasn't around when the when the bible was written so which is just i will never get over how hilarious i think that is and just like one of the best loopholes uh (laughs) in any whiskey production so 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 that's what that's what i have and like i said i'm really excited that we got it finally into market and people are getting to try it and we're not crazy because that's also like a concern right like if you're like one of the few people to try something and you think it's really great and then people get it they're like what is wrong with you like this is not good at all and thus far that hasn't happened you know at least nobody said that to my face so um but i think but i think now it's time for (laughs) our 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 opinions on facts that we've heard from reputable sources Did your sound bite disappear? Oh. <laughs> no. There it is. Oh, It's one boy. of those days, guys. One of those days. That is... I felt so it's, good it's today going into this. I was like, I'm all prepped. I'm here early. I got everything going. And, uh, you know... And here we are. Say lovey. But what we're we going to talk about... Yeah. It's going to make you feel better. Is the... Is this growing trend of more and more distillers using rice as as their base. So in this article that was covered by 750 Daily, we are uh, learning that more and more places throughout the world are getting into rice distillation. And they featured two, two different distillers, one in Louisiana, one in Florida, just talking about the abundance and wanting to set themselves apart. And a, a base product that is that is very susceptible to the barrels that they use and is fun to work with. This of course brings in the conversation with uh, rice whiskeys that are coming out of Japan, like Oishi and Fukano are two of the ones that I work with. And then our VP of, of imports, Chris Udi talking about what they're doing and the cask influences and stuff like that. And it makes sense because, you know, in this world we have a lot of rice based distillates, whether that's Sochu, Baiju, which we've talked a lot about on this on this podcast because we find it absolutely fascinating that it's one of the biggest spirits in the world and nobody here drinks it um as well as uh lao lao is one of the ones that they refer to so 
so this is a this is an up and coming uh, spirit, and more and more distillers are throwing this hat into the ring. There's definitely some pushback on it from people who are more used to the conventional uh, base products and being converted into whiskey. But Tucker, for you, when you read this article. I mean, and you, and again, you you have this really long history of of being in this industry, and that you're seeing this stuff that has been around, but it hasn't been around in America or in the America bar scene. When you see something like this, is this something that you want to get behind? Is this something that you want to get involved in your bars? Or are you kind of like, hey, I think we're still a little far off from this happening? Uh, I'm excited for it because, it, to me, I start this article. To me, tells me, oh there's going to be new booze. There's going to be new booze coming mm -hmm. and new, new ways to approach. And then, and it's, and in a lot of regard, it's actually not, it's not new booze. It's booze that's been around for centuries and there's cultures much older than ours that have been doing it far better than we will for the, probably for the foreseeable future as we develop our own learning curve with making it here, uh, doing it far better than, than we will probably do for the next you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years as it's in its infancy as a, as a U.S. product. But at the same time, it's exciting. Like, uh, um, I like the idea that, uh, and something we said uh, before the cast, I like the idea that it's going to force uh, U.S. regulators and regulations to change uh, their attitude and kind of take a look at the category of whiskey uh, on a whole, with a whole different approach. That's like, okay, rice and cereal grain, but in other parts of the world, it's also blended with sweet potato, which is not considered a cereal grain. Uh, it's, it could be blended with, uh, you know, uh, it, it could be used, you know, they, they could go the approach of a Koji mold, which a lot of the current U.S. Um, distillers for rice whiskey aren't using. So it's just going to force them to kind of like to take a different approach and kind of like open up and uh, open their minds to what else could be in that category or figure out what else how else to define the category so um and then on a uh on a hyper local level um it is uh it's it's really cool to see because you know i i'm a sacramento valley kid i grew up in, in woodland and uh that is uh cal rose and permi country and and you know sacramento is one of the four leading regions in the u.s for rice production uh between uh mississippi uh mississippi you know uh floodplain the uh arkansas uh, uh uh grand prairie and then you have the gulf coast states but then it's not even california it's sacramento valley uh as you know as the fourth you know biggest producer on the global market like we don't produce a whole lot of rice um we're really low but what we export like that's where we make up for it. Like we, we make up for 6% of the total export market with our rice leaving the country. So it kind of like, it makes me think, uh, okay, what's going to happen there? Like as TTB and uh, uh, the other government agencies start to evaluate and kind of make decisions about this, what's going to happen with rice as a commodity on the global market? Like, is this going to mean that big houses like, uh, like Beam Centauri or uh, huge, like a huge house like um, Sapporo, um, uh, are they going to then start gobbling up huge rice farms uh, more so than they already have, and like really give like 
you know, InBev a run for their money on, on how much rice, you know, they, they started gobbling up. So it's just, you know, it's exciting to me because I, I like the idea of new booze. I definitely feel like it's in its infancy. Like we got a ways before we're going to start to really see it hit the marketplace before we start to see it on the, on the back bar. Like even right now, like, like we know and we can name several rice whiskeys or rice uh, malt spirits that are, that are on shelves right now, but there's not that many bars that have them on the shelves. I mean, Drew, you're putting in the work and you're doing a great job getting, getting the product out there. There's still, it's hard, there's still plenty of Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, like I can I can personally attest to just how how difficult it, it is. And um yeah, man, I, I think you're but I think you're right. It's 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 something that is gonna continue to grow. And I think that again with people building out back bars and wanting to try new stuff. And, you know, with it throughout this article, there, there was multiple instances of uh, them referring to blind tastings where people didn't even know that they were, that they were drinking rice whiskey. And, and I think that's definitely true. I know for a lot of the ones that we have, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty freaking clear that it's rice, you know, if you've ever had rice in your life, but there is times where, you know, you get to certain certain age statements where it's kind of like it's like wow that yeah that's gonna get really really tough. Um, so Chris, co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast, what is your impression of of this article? I mean, again, like you know, you're you have this bottle shop, you have these little bottles of sake up front. You're bringing weird things to the table. You know, when you read something like this, does it get you excited about the prospect of, of these rice whiskeys and makes you want to explore more of them, like similar to like what we want to do with the Baiju, assuming we can ever find stuff that's cool and affordable? Well, yeah. Uh, a, can you just always introduce me that way? Like whenever we're talking, it doesn't matter if we're recording or not. You just always record, always <laughs> refer to me as Chris the co-host of Good Bottle Podcast. That would be that'd be fantastic. Well, I've watched um, you, you know, butcher I, I that have... so much <laughs> that I was like, I had to nail it on my first one because like you've never been good at introducing me as the co-host. So now, like, I was like, I was like, this is where I'm going to get him. This is where I'm going to get my edge. But yeah, I will. I think you you guys need to you, you need to take it and apply it when you're not even on the podcast. Like you're just in a bar. Like, oh, uh, can you drop off that beer to Chris, the co-host of Good Bottle Podcast, for me? Hundred percent. I'm buying that beer for. Him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, that, that's what we're doing. Guerrilla marketing. <laughs> just exactly. Totally. It's I'm I'm uh, very, know, I, I'm very on board with it. I'm very on board with it. I think I think I'm more excited about uh, sort of what the future holds than what uh, the present sort of looks like. I, I think is the is the most succinct way to put it. Uh, if I now expand on that, you know, very similar to to what Tuck was saying that I I'm excited about seeing sort of what innovation comes out. Um, I think that right now rice whiskeys are going through. Um, a little bit of a misnomer, you know, people, people are sort of grouping it together in the same, uh, I don't know, dis disdain as they had in the past for like blended whiskeys and, and people still do, you know, um, regardless of whether or not 
it tastes good or not. But when people find out that it's a blended whiskey, when people find out that it's a rice whiskey, they sort of turn their nose up at it. You know, they're like, oh, that's not that's not really what I expected. So therefore, and I don't understand it. Therefore, it's not worth as much. It's not as good. I don't I don't understand. You know, they don't understand cultural significance of it. And uh, oftentimes for me, you know, I my problem when it my critique, I guess I would say for rice whiskey really comes down to like it uh, oftentimes it's just too young uh, comes off because it 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 attaches to the, you know, the flavor from the barrel really quick. Um, and so you can you can find a nice, mellow, creamy whiskey at two years old with rice whiskey. Right. So that the economics of it is really fast. You could turn that bad boy around, pump it out in less time. It's not going to be as hot. It's going to be creamy. It's going to be really palatable. Um, but also it lacks a lot of depth. What, what I find is though that the, the longer they age and you, you get a little bit more of those characteristics from, from the barrel. Um, and I really start hoping, I'm really hoping that, that um, distillers, specifically American distillers, really start learning about traditions with using rice, and and start taking some of those concepts and tweaking them and making them apply. You know, like you were saying, Tucker, there's there's no one who really uses koji in making rice whiskey, which is that's mind boggling when you think about it. So so for our, our our guests who might not know what koji yeast is, it's it's the main yeast that really goes into uh, sake production. You're not really getting um, uh, rice to ferment, uh, unless you're using koji yeast, um, or you're using yeast, but specifically for sake, you're using koji yeast. Um, and, and now there are even sake producers who are playing around. I, I have one in the shop right now. I've got a sake in there. That's got three times the koji used to create, to create that sake. And it is, it's so funky. It's so weird. It's so big and bold and bad. Um, and it's unlike any sake I've ever had in my life. It would be so rad if, you know, uh, whiskey producers who are concentrating on rice start playing around with their fermentations. Let that fermentation of that rice sit a little bit longer, control it, get like, get three weeks, four weeks into fermenting and see what kind of flavors you can pull out of it. Play, play along with like milling that rice down. There's a reason it works for sake. Maybe it works great for whiskey. Who knows? We certainly don't because right now it's just a bulk product, right? It's just, it's a way to just dump in, make a lot of money or make some money and use a different grain. You're not using cereal grains, you know? Um, but for a hyper local example, you know, Midtown Spirits, uh, our friend of the pod, Jason Poole, he's, he's located right here in Midtown uh, in Sacramento. Everything they're doing is rice based. Uh, and I asked him, you know, what's the deal with that? What what were you thinking? Like, why would you do something like that? He's like, it's Sacramento, man. It's like we we crush rice. That's what we do. There's nothing more Sacramento than rice right now. He's like, I'm not making a tomato vodka. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, it, I think it's it's you know you you bring up you bring up some really good points, and I think we you know we probably need to look a little bit more into the production of the of the U.S. distillers in terms of using koji and stuff like that because they might be. Um, it wasn't discussed in this in this article. It was discussed for some of the other brands like Fukano and Oishi that are coming from Japan. They are definitely using Koji. Um, uh, Chris, the co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast, last week we had that Awamori 
um, which was using the uh, black Koji, which I thought was really, really interesting. And, and if anything, like, you know, Koji to me has been one of the more fascinating um, parts of fermentation that, that I've learned over the past year. And it was actually a huge part of American fermentation in the early 1900s. And it wasn't until there was some political fallout and, um, and some other nefarious things that that the the use of koji in American whiskey production was was essentially eliminated. The the reality is when you're using koji is like you can actually you get bigger yields and um, with alcohol and stuff. At least that's that's what I've been you know led led to believe. And I think the um, you know one of the fun things about about being someone who's involved with Oishi and Fukano is that you often find yourselves on the, on the front line of, um, of battling the so-called, the so-called purist of whiskey production and saying things like, well, the, you know, the reason you don't call it whiskey is because, uh, because Koji is used at, at one point. And you're just kind of like, what is the, you know, it's, it's a, it's a way to encourage more fermentation. Like it's, you know, it, to to me, it's just it's very much so on the same level as introducing a specific yeast strand, which is exactly what happens with a lot of this whiskey production and stuff like that. And and you know, and and again, like this this is stuff that I've had in the past where the the rice whiskeys have been polarizing for me as well, where you're just kind of like, yeah, you know, some of these non age statement stuff, like I just it's very prominent rice, but then when it gets into that nine ten. 11 year expressions you're just kind of like wow like this is really turned into this this bold and beautiful spirit and you know and and from the japanese perspective you know they don't consider any of this stuff whiskey in japan which is a real shame and that's not has and that doesn't have to do with the koji production or anything like that but it has to do with margaret thatcher and the fact that during the early 80s margaret thatcher comes over you know to the uk and it's like Oh no no this this rice whiskey stuff this can't this is a this is a legitimate threat to Scottish single malts so we're going to nip this in the butt right now it cannot be um you know if it's if it's going to be sochu it has to be a certain type of color which is bonkers if you think about that in terms of a grading scale and then the second thing is like once we get to a certain point you can't call it whiskey at all and so you had all these families who had this you know what was sochu aging in these barrels, they were trying this different stuff and then they couldn't do anything with it. And that's really where the American market emerges and really the world market emerges as, well, this is can also be considered whiskey because the ABV is so high on this stuff. So now we get to experience this really cool product. And, you know, and again, this annual crop that's coming and I just, I get so excited about talking about this stuff because it's kind of like, it's like, it's new, it's different. You know, like it has this rich history, but you're also experimenting with new things and, and stuff like that. And, you know, and they're every couple of months, you know, you're seeing another article like somebody's talking about it, you know, or whether it's Forbes or now 750 or, you know, um, Whiskey Advocate. Like there's all these different people who are taking a bigger and bigger interest into this. It's like, well, at the, at the very minimum, you got to, you know, to our listeners out there, go find some, some rice whiskey, hit me up. I'll tell you where it's at. Like, it's just like, there's some really, really cool stuff that's out there. And, you know, whether it's a Sakura cask or port or sherry or brandy, I mean, the, the list just go on and on because there's no rules. They can just put it into what the hell ever. You know, and I think that's super fun. It also, I mean, that also kind of makes me curious as to like, 
if it really gets traction, if it gains traction in the U.S. and uh, there's regulations put in place where it's defined, it has it has its own category, it's a thing. However, it's defined. Um, what does that mean for barrel production? Like, uh, it would behoove anyone that was getting involved that you know to fight against uh, the you know the same mandates that like bourbon has, where it has to be a brand new barrel. I mean, that's we know we know for a fact that's going to kill the subtleness of of a rice distillate. But then also, it's like we don't have that those kind of oak stands to supply a grow a second growing market that needs brand new oak. So what does that, you know, maybe that maybe there's a finer balance where like uh the American uh bourbon distillers that with their surplus barrels and there's another avenue for them to use the barrels. Uh right. maybe they stay stay domestic. Or but, we use uh, a different type of yeah, wood. I mean, I mean, imagine, imagine a rice, yeah. maybe imagine a rice whiskey in like a pine barrel or something like that. Like that would be yeah, so like, different, you know, you know the, the expression coming out of yeah. it in over, over years. Like I, I've never had a cedar barrel whiskey that was like seven plus years old. I just, at least not as far as right. I know. But I mean, it's, it's a thing for uh, for wine and for brandy. I mean, you've got you know not quite century old, but like you've got huge open vats that are you know 50, 60, 70 years old that like Gallo uses that uh, Corbell had. Like so, both for wine and for brandy production. So it's like you know you've got you've got the means to be able to do it. You know, on on, on a parallel note, uh, I tasted a, yeah. a whiskey uh, last week. I don't, I don't think you were there, Drew. You may, you may have been. It was a grain whiskey fermented with koji yeast, um, and it was could it was considered it was considered American American whiskey. I don't think it was considered a bourbon, uh, and it was outrageously good. It was a little young, um, but it was really good. It had a ton of flavor. It was really different, very unique. Um, and I, for the life of me, I, I was trying to do some research before this to, to remember a, who brought it to me and what the name of the damn whiskey was. I can't, can't remember. I, I really, I really liked it. Um, and as soon as I can remember, well, like, I mean, you know, we're going to bring it in, but you're sipping on sake and like, and sake for, for uh, Koji, uh, Koji mold and use, use in sake. I mean, it, you talk to the brewmasters and it's like, it, it's vital to the flavor development of their of their sake and it's just like you know the things that like pair so well with food and add the extra dimension or help bridge that gap uh, of umami flavors it's coming straight from the from the koji mold influence on that sake and, and so yeah i mean it's it's, it's huge i mean the, the yeast is everything you know maybe not everything but yeast is huge for pretty much all distillation in all uh obviously all brewing or fermenting yeah i mean for the, so much of the flavor for the uninitiated who are who, who are listening or you know watching this is our, our first video podcast also by the way for you all who might be watching this Hello. on youtube at a later later point in time uh but we figured tucker was so Wait, pretty is, are you being serious on... <laughs> yeah <laughs> I don't know. Have you thought about discussing yeah. this with the co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast about what we're going to do? Any of these things? I'm, I'm the 
I'm the I'm the co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast, and I discussed it with myself. It sounded great. Um, just drop me an email or something, man. Jesus, <laughs> I texted you earlier. Not about this. Oh my god, you sound like my wife. Okay, you're saying this is how um, the meat gets beat, everybody. This is how we operate. Yeah, I'm sorry, babe. I didn't mean that. He doesn't sound like you. You sound amazing. You're fantastic. Drew, oh Drew's god. just annoyed. Um. I see. I forget what I was going to say. God damn it! Oh, for, I, I was going to say for the uninitiated, oh, for people yeah, people yeah. who are listening and or and or watching, uh, fermentation is where is where booze gets uh, a majority of its flavor. Uh, distillation is is more of that refining aspect, and then obviously you know aging uh, brings its own. But but the development of the flavor really starts off in fermentation, which is why you hear us discussing the yeast so um, vehemently, and why we're we're really into it. Uh, because that's where all the flavor comes from. Yo. Uh. I just want everybody to know I'm very self-conscious about my background now. I just want that out there. <laughs> I I think I want to like, I want to do those cool things where it's like, oh, you have all this like dope stuff behind you. And it's like definitely just my wife's decorating, which is great, but. I mean, it's beautiful. You don't have like a really dope back bar behind. No, you. Like, no, and here, freaking Tucker is sitting at at uh, Hook, just blowing us away with this dope things. And Chris, the co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast, is not telling his other hosts that we're that we're doing videos. So I'm out here flexing on people. It's great. Anyways, moving on. You look good hey, though, uh, man. You've been working check, out. Check your fantastic. Uh, I was going to say uh, the the snafu earlier with uh, the intro music. Uh, check to make sure you're current on your BMI subscription on your BMI <laughs> licensing. It's Maybe fair. chase more music. Put a cease and, de- uh, cease and desist order out there since you hadn't, you know, re-upped your. I mean, they've been telling me that <laughs> I owe them Andy. that I owe them money for a long time. So they, maybe they finally caught me. Is that BMI or Columbia House? Which all is, the above. All the, the above. Columbia House, stuff is, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I mean, I still have some, some of those tapes and CDs. <laughs> For some of our some of our younger <laughs> listeners, that said it's just right over the top, right? They're just kind of like, "What yeah. Columbia House?" Yes, you could get hundreds <laughs> of CDs for a dollar. It was great. It was it your was, uh, it was your musical university. This gray is not airbrushed. Yeah, this they. Is- this is real. They this they is found real they found ways to solve the problems of us not having enough enough music back in the day. Just like <laughs> Maverick North America is solving the smoke taint problem of wines in Napa. So you know, unfortunately, over over the past three I seasons wish I had, of the Good Bottle, I really wish I had like a cricket cricket sound lined up for that. Like for that amazing that transition, really, that was that was a really rough transition, yeah. man. That was, that was a great was segue. A segue. Wasn't much of one. Uh, it was a segue. Listen, it got us. It, <laughs> it, got it, us it definitely Col- happened. It got us from Columbia House <laughs> CDs to <laughs> to our article. I mean, listen, this is what I'm working Fair with. Enough. This is the position that you guys have put Cheers. me in. Cheers to that. <laughs> okay, so so Maverick North America right. is Charge it. is this Charge it. is this company who is running smoke tainted wine through this technology and this this equipment that they've built. To where they're removing smoke taint. So, you know, obviously over the past couple of years in the Napa area, we've had we've had some very very significant fires, and 
if your fields and your your wine house and you know your barrel rooms are not completely lost to the fire themselves, what's happening a lot is you're losing your wine to smoke taint, and that is where it's exactly what it sounds like, right? That that liquid is just completely saturated with smoke. It's not anything that you want. Some of the things that we talked about on previous episodes was um, people were distilling it and then turning it into hand sanitizer. There was also people who were kind of making like a smoky brandy with it. We have yet to get our hands on it to know if that worked or not. But this company itself is that they're they're running they're running this stuff through and they're finding that after it runs through a couple times and winemakers are are kind of being their guinea pigs for it. Obviously, they're finding that it's actually coming back to what it should actually taste like. Um, you know, this would obviously be a very big deal in uh, in the Napa Valley, especially considering that, you know, it's no longer a situation of if, but just when the next fire is. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, at least I couldn't help to kind of feel like there was like this sleazy kind of nature to this company where it just, I mean, it wasn't, I just, I don't know. I got a bad vibe. Tucker, what was the vibe that you got from this process? I mean, am I am I reading too much into this Maverick Corporation? I mean, they, they sound a little Marvel villain to me. <clears throat> uh, no, I, I I think I think you are reading a little too much into it. Now, that being said, uh, I think we're talking about um, I, most of the so the approach to, to smoke tea and stuff like that, they lay out some of the options. Like there's wineries that, that have marginal success or are actually really good success with misting their grapes. Like, uh, uh, so they literally like turn on the sprinklers and wet the, wet the grapes. So that way the smoke doesn't penetrate. It just hits the water and it kind of sheds off. Um, but, uh, that sounds, that sounds great, but yeah, who has, you know, one of the things that you don't really have an abundance of when you're in the middle of fire is probably water. <laughs> so right. diverting water to like spray over grapes just sounds like oh my god i mean could you have more first world like multi-millionaire <laughs> problems than that i mean <laughs> it just sounds it just sounded like out of touch with reality with like considering how how real the fires and how it's just like smoke season it's just it's now it's our sixth season between paul and spring, summer, winter, and fall. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's just getting worse. Uh, so I was, I was intrigued by the fact that they broke it down by a cost per gallon, anywhere from 40 cents to 80 cents, where it's like, you hear that you're like, okay, that's, that's really not that much. Like you, you're really not going to be shelling out that much money in order to recoup what would be 100% loss. And in some cases, the way this works, um, depending upon when you record your loss for those grapes, whether it's on the vine or you brought it in and it's uh, in tank or in barrel, uh, insurance may or may not cover it depending on what stage it is and what, what your insurance is. So, I mean, there's, there's wineries that don't get anything reimburse them they can't they have zero claim uh from the fires because of when they where they were at with the grapes or with the wine whether it was on the vine or actually crushed and in tank or in bath so 
there's recouping some of that cost. Like you're looking at wineries that are probably taking their, their smoke taint wine and just looking to get something back for it. Right. They're selling it to some, to somebody that's doing a negotiant style conglomerate wineries with like, Oh, here is a California red going out to this market. And we're going to do this marketing push behind it. And they'll probably be one and done for that year. And then, never come back around because they will get all this surplus juice at such a discounted rate and they'll just find a way to make it work with oak chips and capitalization and whatever you know adding sugar to it whatever they want to do so this this definitely is intriguing to me because it presents an avenue uh and doing a little deeper dive on that on that company all it's all mobile they go right to the winery um so they have the ability to go to the winery and solve their problem at the winery uh, as opposed to having to transport it all to a facility and have it processed there and then, you know, taking care of it there. So that part, it adds a little extra appeal. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm a winemaker and have all this juice that I can't do anything with, it's like, okay, 40 to 80 cents per gallon. And I can have wine that maybe, regardless of uh, your outlook and, and your approach to winemaking, I mean, obviously natural, you know, the natural wine trend and the people that are, are minimalist when it comes to wine aren't going to embrace something like this unless they're absolutely forced between a rock and a hard place to be like, okay, I either have to do something with this or I'm bankrupt. But most most wine workers are probably just like, eh, I'll just scale back how much I'm going to produce and just charge a lot more for it. And okay, yeah, last vintage cost you 20 bucks a bottle. Now this vintage is going to cost you 37 a bottle because smoke tank. Um, it gives that flexibility to it, what appears to be smaller wineries to be able to like have a fighting chance and not be at the mercy of whatever their insurance says. You know they're going to pay out for for their for their loss. So my but my mind does immediately go to like the Kendall Jacksons and you know Gallows of the world where they're like, okay, we have 1.6 million gallons of smoke tape wine that we got at this price, and then if we have to pay 62 cents per gallon to remove the smoke tape, we can still be this profitable. Okay. We have our new product that's going to go to the shelves and stack, stack it high and watch it fly at, at your yeah. local Costco or, you know, whatever it is. I, I feel like that's probably more realistic with how it's going to be applied. But I do like the idea that they are kind of marketing it to the like, hey, you know, small level, like, you know, one barrel is only going to cost you this much. So, yeah. I did. I did look at their testimonials. Not a single testimonial has like a name. <laughs> it's like it is uh, assistant winemaker at a high end uh, Alexander Valley winery, <laughs> or <laughs> winemaker at Sonoma County winery, or winemaker at Russian River winery. See, so and it's like there's like zero names to any of the testimonials, right? Because like nobody, nobody's ready to cut. To, to, to sign nope. off on the fact that nope. they just sold you smoke tainted nope. wine. Um, yeah. Chris. Uh, or, or like, or reduced alcohol wine or uh, wine that was heavily manipulated to, re to remove uh, 
uh, VA or, or reduced VA or TCA, like whatever it is, like, nope, we don't want to, we don't want our name attached to that. Yeah. We embrace the technology, but keep our name out of it. Right. Right. Um, okay. Uh, so Chris, the co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast, what, uh, what were your impressions of this article and how you see it being applied moving forward? You know, my, my first thought, uh, honestly went to when, cause I, I, keyed in on the same thing that talk just did, which was the, the 40 to 80 cents per gallon. I found that really interesting. And, and my initial thought was, well, how much does it cost to get rid of wine? Um, you know, I, I've often heard about, you know, um, uh, you know, winemakers being displeased with the wine that, that like came out from a certain season or something went wrong, whatnot. Um, and so I, I did a little bit of digging and I, t- I talked to a couple of winemakers today and turns out it, it actually doesn't cost technically anything to get rid of wine, um, but it has to be approved by the TTB, which I found super interesting. You're not allowed to dump anything hmm. because um, probably for taxes, right? Like they want, they just want to know that you're not dumping it with air quotes and dumping it into bottles and selling them again. <laughs> um, uh, so they, they just have to be able to sign off on it and just say that, yes, okay, you're, you know, checking the box. Yeah. This is, this is going down the drain. Um, right. So, uh, but then again, it depends at what point, like, like you mentioned, Chris, what point in the process you are, you know, is it, uh, is it yeah. uh, in the barrels uh, that it went bad, you know, and this is for any sort of taint, not just smoke taint. Is it in the barrels? Is it in the bottle? Has like a whole batch gone bad? Um, you know, so if you're dumping anything, TTB has to know they have to be uh, they have to be alerted to it, so they're not taxing um, people on it. So it, it doesn't technically cost anything, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and again, I went I went right to exactly the same thing. I was thinking about the gallows of the world, like man, this is like millions of dollars. Uh, you know, in removing smoke taint, if you have like a huge fucking harvest that you've got to, that you've got to like strip. Uh, I thought it was, uh, I, the two chemicals that they're, they're uh, chemicals, I guess chemicals, two proteins really that they're using, um, that, uh, they, they keyed in on, um, at least for a little bit of exposure to what it is that they do. Uh, they're using Clarpure and Clarmix, which are both from, uh, ATP, and, and get used pretty often in winemaking as it is. Um, uh, Clarpure is a potato protein, uh, and it removes like off flavors from uh, the Britannomyces in wine. And Clarmix is uh, uh, I had to I had to look this one up because this one sent me down a rabbit hole. It, it reduces the microcatechines, uh, which is which are uh, phenol and, and antioxidants uh, that uh, that show up in in lots of different fruit, but specifically in grapes. Um, and it's often used just for clarification. It's like a natural clarification. And uh, I, I I seem to remember, and I'm sure someone out there who's obsessed with beer is going to tell me. I think Clarmix is one of those that's been uh, being used in sort of a natural way these days to take beer and turn it into uh, a gluten-free beer by naturally just stripping, uh, stripping the gluten out of the beer. Uh, if I'm, I could be wrong about this, but I think Berryessa brewery is using it, uh, so that way all their beers are made with proper cereal grains and glutinous materials and everything like that. And then, uh, and then as it rests, they're throwing in Clarmix and it's, it's just, uh, creating this clumping, uh, effect with all the proteins and, 
and it just happens to be a happy accident where it's grabbing the gluten protein out of that mixture as well. And it just, they all clump together and they weigh down and they just siphon the juice right off the top. Um, and it's been tested and it, it also, it pulls, it pulls the, uh, uh, gluten parts per million down to like uh, under like 0.05% um, parts per million, which is really, really interesting. Um, so these are like, these are two, two really readily common uh, chemicals that are being used, but there's certainly there's something else because it can't just be those two things, right? Well, I mean, maybe it is, I don't know, but it seems like there should be something else uh, from the sound of it, from, from reading, uh, reading, the 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 beginnings reading the origins of maverick they talked about the australian fires and they talked about starting in 2000 um and really just going through going through the gamut and trying everything trying uh you know all all different sorts of finding methods where it's like egg whites they were also using clay um and everything like that and they just they couldn't find anything that just left flavor and just stripped these sort of phenols out um, so I, I think it's kind of interesting. I don't, I didn't really get the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, Dr. Evil vibe out of this one, Drew, but I think you've been watching a lot of, uh, a lot of wrestling lately. So maybe you just need a bad guy. I needed a heal. Need your, You're totally right. That's it. Yeah. Maverick North America. I apologize, but if you end up being a bad guy, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> You know who's dope? Them over there. Okay, so now time for my favorite segment of the week, our Dope Follows. Um, What these are, are people, podcasts, books, movies, whatever, that we think that our listeners would really benefit from. So uh, we always have our guests bring a Dope Follow. So, Tucker, with that being said, who... Or what is your dope follow this week? Okay, uh, so I I brought three to, uh, to this podcast <laughs> <cast>, um, <laughs> just just because I I did want to narrow it down to one. This um, is the this is the politics of the so dope follow. I, That's what this is right now. It's just kind of like he's a little influential. He's like I got I got to hit this person too. Got to make sure you know I like, take care of my people here. Perfect. Oh, stop it. Not even. Uh, I mean, right off the bat, the first person I'm listening, like, eclipsed my following by tens of thousands of people. Um, and some of that, uh, I'm not sure, uh, uh, Chris, uh, co-host of Good Bottles Podcast, uh, it might be someone that you already uh, follow, but uh, Pam Wiz on Instagram, on Instagram, at Pam Wiz. Uh, she's just a badass. Uh, uh Pam Wisnitzer. She's a creative director at uh, Seamstress New York. Um, so badass cocktail person, uh, heavily involved in uh, uh, in speed rack. Uh, also, um, uh, what I liked and why I'm, I'm pumping her her IG handle right now is what she did throughout COVID. She did all these videos that uh she posted on on instagram and it would be for for cocktails or for uh garnishes but they were all like 
set to music. She'd be dancing. She'd have costumes going on. And she just like totally put herself out there in what looks like to be like probably a one bedroom apartment that she was sheltered in place in for in, in New York. She's in New York. And um, two of the ones that stood out to me, uh, the cocktail, the champagne cocktail in the style of One Day More, uh, where she had a friend and they're like doing all the theatrics of One Day More. And this was, I think it was, was it one day before Election Day? So it got a little political. So it was like, it, it was just, it was just phenomenal. And, um, and then the other one, uh, she did uh, garnishes in the style of You Can't Touch This. So it was MC Hammer, you can't touch this. And the whole breakdown of how you can't touch these garnishes. These garnishes are not for guests to put their hands in. Like, don't touch this. Like these are Brilliant. these are for the bartenders to touch, not not the guests. It was just it was fantastic. And so it doesn't matter which one of her videos you click on, you're going to be entertained, you're gonna be amused. And uh in a year like twenty twenty, having um someone like that put a little bit of uh joy into your day was uh was just delightful and so yeah at pam Wiz on instagram you won't be disappointed okay um i so go, yeah, go keep, the keep going baby you got we got <laughs> two right, more to get going. through the other one on instagram i i gotta say like uh personally and this is a shout out because uh you know i talk about i talked about how um so proud of the team uh both here at at Hook and at Golden Bear and how everyone pulled together and just uh, how everyone gelled throughout 2020 to like get us through uh, the pandemic and kind of help each other out. And one of the unsung heroes throughout was um, Matt Chong and his whole team at Disrupt Media who helped do our social media for both Golden Bear and Hook and Ladder. Um, he also does the social media for uh, for Crew, and he crafts an individual message to each space where you wouldn't know that's the same person kind of curating the Instagram and stories and posts for those venues because he 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 and his team put so much effort into uh, getting to know the personality of the space and the personality of the of the shop and the, what the personality is of golden bear and what how that's different from hook and ladder and then telling that through the stories on instagram and telling that through the post um i mean increased our 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 grab or our feed um uh as far as uh, um, who we uh could reach uh it it got the attention of people and it just i, I think it did a great job of kind of um just telling the story of everything we were going through and what we were trying to do throughout throughout COVID and uh, it seemed just a phenomenal job. So they are um, uh, at be disruptive on Instagram and uh, yeah, they're incredible. And the other one is uh, totally just like, kind of like uh, just filler popcorn, uh, lots of dad humor. And it's a, it's, it's a podcast I put on when I'm not listening to good bottle podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's what I, it's what I put on when I'm like, pulling weeds at home or maybe I'm, you know, prepping some food for my dogs, you know, or uh, just kind of doing something. I just want something kind of, you know, after, after good bottle podcast has really like pushed me and really compelled me to search <laughs> inward and really go and really God do my right. own homework and, and, and question, you know, everything I do and everything I touch with regards to what I pour. Uh, sometimes I need something that's just a release from that and uh, smart list 
is one of those guilty pleasures for me. It's uh, Sean Hayes, Jason Bateman, and Will Arnett. And it's just, it's, it's filled with uh, softball interviews, softball question interviews with actors. One of my favorite ones with uh, Gustavo uh, Dudamel, who's the uh, uh, conductor for the LA Philharmonic and talks about his outreach program, uh, going to at-risk youth and getting them involved in music. But um, it, it's just a, it's a podcast on uh, that. Uh, it just, you can listen to it, have a few laughs and just, you know, you can get, you can fold your laundry and then realize, oh, well, I just did a stack of undies and I didn't realize, you know, I just did a stack of undies and a stack of towels. So there you go. There's my, those are my <laughs> dope follows. I, I love those. Those are all, those are all super great. And I look forward to, to sharing more of those. Uh, Chris, the co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast, who's your dope follow this week? Yeah, man. Uh, well, I, I'm going serious this week. I figure we got to like, you know, talk went went like lighthearted and and and, uh, and I have to maintain that like, you know, hyper vigilant uh, academic vibe. Uh, it's uh, on Instagram or Facebook, but really the group is called the Cuba Study Group. Uh, they are a um, a bunch of people who just have pulled their life experiences as well as uh, political science uh, studies, their PR, all together to really figure out how to bridge the gap between America and Cuba and create um, create an effective relationship um, that is profitable, prosperous uh, for everyone involved, especially the people, more specifically the people and um, and they give suggestions to government. They give suggestions to people. Um, and it's really fascinating. You can find them pretty much anywhere. Facebook, you can find them on Instagram. You can find them on uh, on YouTube. Um, but the Cuba Study Group, I started uh, sort of just diving deep just because it was um, – I, I just stumbled across it because I it's a, it's a topic that I find myself uh, interested in every once in a while. Uh, luckily because I don't, I don't have to live it. Um, but with, you know, recent politics being what it was and Florida being what it was and, uh, the turnout there and really getting in, into sort of, um, the population, uh, it was just something that spurred, uh, spurred up again. And, and I was interested in, I just fell down this rabbit hole and found them and they're really good. They, it's, uh, they are relatively apolitical. They've got people from all over the political spectrum. I mean, it's just really solid information, uh, that's really well researched and interesting really more than anything else. So yeah, Cuba studying group. What about you, Drew? Um, so I was going back and forth between between the ones I wanted to do today, and then um, Tucker did three. So I was like, "Well, if I'm only doing two, you know, what's what's <laughs> the, what's the harm here?" <laughs> so, so the first one I I have is is Saks underwear, and that's S A X X, and then underwear. This stuff was recommended to me on Friday. I jumped on Amazon, got it, got it like Sunday, and then I'm wearing them today. This is unfortunately very directed towards the fellas. Um, it's the best underwear I've ever had in my life. Like, oh my god! It's okay. It's 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 our key demographic. It's fine. It's this is this stuff is it's great. There's like 
ball sack technology involved in terms of keeping your keeping your junk good to go. This is the BDE underwear that you need in your life. Um, I absolutely love it, and I've only been wearing it for a day. I am going to take my next paycheck and buy all the rest of it because I don't think I'm at a point in my life anymore where I can't afford not to have all of it seven days a week. It's just I'm ruined. I'm ruined now. Um, so there's that one. My second follow is something that um, myself and Chris, the co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast, we're talking about tonight. And it is the Instagram account Taste Awards and more importantly, the Taste Awards in general. There is uh, a friend of mine who has a podcast, which I think is good, but it's not as good as ours. And they're up for all these different Taste Awards. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. As much as I like them, we should be up for just as many because we're having fun. There's all kinds of good stuff that we – and so I was like, I was like, so how does this happen? And of course, you have to nominate yourself or someone nominates you and things like that. And I, and I believe that we're past the nominations for this year. So listeners, go out. Follow the – Sounds like Tales of the Cocktail. It's, it's very much yeah. of those vibes yeah. <laughs> where it's kind of like, you know, you know, tell us why you're so important and then send us a bunch of samples. Um, so, so taste awards. <laughs> Check them out. And go tell them that you guys need to get this 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 up and coming this up and coming podcast that has over 500 listens a month is now present in 10 different countries. It's coming together. We're having fun with it. And the Taste Awards, you can either be an early adopter, you can be late to the party. It's up to you guys. So I'm going to follow you nonetheless but I expect to follow back. So this is the first request to follow back and it's going out to the taste awards. So you can see what, what we're into, but um, there it is. There's our, there's our dope follows of the week. The uh, Saks underwear. What is it specifically that has you so convinced this is, this is now what will uh, cradle your nether regions for the rest of your life. So they, um, it's, I can't show you guys right now because now it's it's going on YouTube. (laughs) But it's, I wish I had the box around me, but it's so funny. Like they talk about this emphasis on this like ball sack lining that you have. And I, and at first I'm kind of like, I'm like, this is the most ridiculous for marketing alone. I was in, right. I was just kind of like, I was like, Oh, I can, I can buy a pair of these. It's fine. They're supposed to be like bamboo, which I heard is very soft. So I'm like, okay, I'm in for that. I'm in for the comfort and things like that. And then I take these things out of the box and there's legitimate extra lining in them, which does not exist in any other pair of underwear I've ever had in my life. And so immediately I'm kind of like, I don't know what these guys are into, but I'm into it as well. And they've, they've clearly added this extra fabric for a reason. And then, I mean, it, it's like one of those things too, is like, as soon as you like, as soon as I slipped them on, I was just kind of like, I was like, oh yeah, I'm in. I looked at my underwear drawer and I was like, you guys have failed me for years and you're all out now. <laughs> you're all out. And they, and then, you know, they do, they do have some like cool designs and stuff like that, which I didn't actually realize until I went to their Instagram and, um, and started looking them up because, like, I just when I went on Amazon, I was like, I was like, oh man, not really a whole lot going on here. So I got some camo ones, and I just, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan, and uh, I'll, I'll see if I can find the box, and I'll. And I saw the one with the Sasquatch. 
and it, it, there's that's the tip of the iceberg, man. It's the tip of the iceberg. There's some crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff. And as a guy who's not a big fan of pants, right. it's important to have different different types of underwear to mix it up when when I'm walking around the house. So, and then my front yard and my backyard, and basically all the places my wife does not want me to go without pants on. Um, so, you know, it, it's that's that's another sign of age that's like the appreciation of a good fitting pair of pants. Like I, after, uh, after this weekend, like I, I started to look at my closet and my, and my uh, little dresser. I'm like, Oh, these are all garbage. Like, I don't like how any of these pants fit me. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's COVID and the extra weight, you know, maybe that's, that's this, but I'm just like. I don't know. I think it's. I think it's. I need to find a good pair. Of pants. I think it's both. I think it's. I think it's COVID, and I do think it. It's a thing that comes with age, where you're just kind of like the COVID makes you realize how precious this stuff is. And if you think I'm going to spend one more minute being uncomfortable in clothes, forget about it. I'm out. Yeah, I'm yeah. out. Like yeah. I've been. Totally. I've, I'm. I, I can't. I can't do it anymore. And then the same thing. The same thing with the age stuff. It's just kind of like you know, all of us are in. Um, you know, committed relationships. We have committed to a lifestyle that we have no plans of changing anytime soon. And so, to me, it's just kind of like I'm going to be comfortable. And as long as the partner signs off on this, that's all I care about. You know, like I'm good. Go. I'm good now. So it's just going to be like, hey, these these are going to be super comfy. It's probably going to cost me a couple extra dollars than uh, than the typical you know four packet Target used to used to uh, cost me. But you feel the difference. The price point makes a lot of sense with these. So again, I, I mean, we're gonna have to find one. We're gonna have to find one for our our female listeners of like what's maybe they can send us some recommendations on like hey talk about these next time because these are super dope for women and I because I'm in. We're take care of yourself. Take care of the, take care of the goods. Sex underwear sponsor us. There you go. <laughs> Casa Sanchez. Hey, Casa Sanchez as well. <laughs> So much free stuff. <laughs> Goddamn right. <laughs> All right, y'all. Thank you for enjoying tonight's today's Good Bottle Podcast. And wow, my brain just totally went blank. So you know what? Uh, the music today is brought to you by uh, the Brothers Moore. We always want just a little bit more. Leon and Chase, you guys are lovely human beings, and thank you for this beautiful, beautiful, funky trumpet shit that we get to play every single week. And that's what I got. We have a script, by the way. So it's not in, it's, it's gonna run it's it. not in front of me. Now listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna just do all of Chris's parts, okay? So before we go and kill these bottles that we've been drinking, we ask that if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a five star review. We know it's not the easiest thing to do in the world, and we've in fact, Chris, the co-host of the Good Bottle Podcast, and myself have struggled to do reviews ourselves. So we know it's hard, but we appreciate it. We appreciate the five stars. You know what? We're in 10 countries today. You leave us a five-star review. We're going to be in 11 next week, and we owe that to you guys. Um, but you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Good Bottle Podcast or on our personal accounts, which is uh, D Garrison 6 for myself and Kristen Flair for Chris, the co-host of The Good Bottle Podcast. Um, Tucker, where can they follow you on the social medias? 
Uh, social media, I'm uh, at Drink Enabler on Instagram. Uh, yeah, that's where you can find Which me. is one of my favorite Instagram account names for, for the record. Um, and also, if you want to support my desire to completely replace my underwear collection with nothing but Saks underwear, the greatest fitting underwear in the world, you can check out anchor.fm slash goodbottlepodcast. Um, and then actually one more one more question for you, for you Tucker. Would uh, people want to come out to, to Hook or they want to go out to Golden Bear? What are the, what are the hours right now? Oh, yeah. Uh, so we're actually getting ready to expand our hours. So getting back to more and more normalcy, we're uh, at Hook. Currently, we're Sunday through Thursday, 12, or excuse me, Monday through Thursday, 12 to 8. And uh, Friday, 12 to 9. Saturday, Sunday, we do brunch from 10 to 2.30. Dinner goes till 9 or 8 o'clock. But we're all we're going to expand an extra hour on each one of those days starting next Monday. So we'll be open till 9.00. Uh, Sunday through Thursday until 10 o'clock, Friday and Saturday. Golden Bear, Golden Bear's always hopping. The party's going nonstop <laughs> over there. They're, they're open till 2 a.m. And uh, yeah, they haven't slowed down. They're just killing it. So go check it out, guys. If you need any recommendations on the menu, um, especially especially at Hook, just get anything because it's all been good. I always get something new when I go unless I default to my burger choice, but usually I get something new every time. Um, if you'd like us to cover a story or if you're a brand like Saks Underwear or Costa Sanchez Chips that wants to be featured on the podcast, you can email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. And as a reminder, the bottles that we drank tonight you can you can find them uh, at thegoodbottleshop.com. So until next time, cheers to the two Chris's who joined me tonight. Cheers, guys. Nailed it. Cheers.